0: Well it is nice to be with you today and uh, I hope that you've had a good run up to Christmas Um, I was thinking a little bit about the work in the the cafe next door and uh, wondering how the Christmas meals went and I hope that it wasn't too busy for those that were involved and uh, I hope there was lots of opportunity to talk a little bit about the meaning of Christmas I see this tent still up or this gazebo or whatever it's called. So I hope that last Sunday's nativity went well and there were lots of visitors in, uh, families in. And uh, I'm grateful that you left it up, at least just for my benefit, if no one else's. Well, uh, last time I was here, I looked with you at uh, the end of Luke chapter 1. And today I would like to look at the beginning of Luke chapter 2. So if you have a Bible uh, and would like to read with me, I'm reading from the NIV, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. I'll just read the first seven verses of this passage. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him or was betrothed to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, The time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Well I think maybe we'll read on a little bit further Uh, I'd like us just to be introduced to uh, these characters that come next in the Christmas story And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby Keeping watch over their flocks at night And the angel of the Lord appeared to them And the glory of the Lord shone around them And they were terrified But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news and that will cause you great joy and great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David a Saviour has been born to you and he is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. To those on whom his favour rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning all. What had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Now, just a prayer together as we ask the Lord to help us as we ponder this familiar passage of scripture. Lord, help us, we pray as we turn now to your word for a few moments and as we think about it together. As we think about this story that we're familiar with, we pray that you'll uh, cause it to come to us with great freshness. The freshness that you, by your Holy Spirit, uh, give and bring as you minister your word to our hearts. So help us, we humbly pray, and we ask this in our Saviour's name. Amen. So a young boy was told the Christmas story by his teacher at a school in London and uh, he sat captivated uh, because he had never heard the Christmas story and he had never heard about this baby that was born uh, to this uh, girl called Mary. He listened uh, to the story of Mary Joseph, the baby Jesus, the angels, the wise men, and so on. And at the end of the story, he told the teacher that he had never heard a story quite like this in all of his life. But there was one thing that puzzled him. And the thing that puzzled him was why they gave the baby a swear word for a name. That's a true story of a school in London, where a little boy, having listened to the story, the Christmas story, wondered why they had given this baby a swear word uh, for his name. I think it's fair to say, and you may disagree with me, but I think it's fair to say that fewer and fewer people know the truth about this season that we celebrate the coming of Christ into the world. And I think there are many, many people like this little boy that I spoke of. A teacher, another teacher, but also in England, asked her class to draw the baby Jesus and his flight into Egypt. Um, One young girl drew a baby sitting on a plane, which was presumably flying to Egypt. In one television interviewer, who was walking the street at Christmas time, uh, the interviewer asked uh, one young woman on the sidewalk or on the pavement or whatever, asked her, what is the meaning of Christmas? And laughing, she responded and says, I I don't know. Is that the day that Jesus died or something? And she was genuine. She really didn't know what the significance of the season uh, was. I think that is sadly becoming more and more the norm. And I wonder how many of the people that you and I live among and uh, rub shoulders with on a daily basis really know what the significance of Christmas is. Um, They probably know that it's about a baby, uh, but I wonder how many of them know that this baby was born, not only born, but lived a perfect life and died an atoning death. And rose again victoriously over death in his resurrection. And now lives as the ascended, exalted, risen Christ. Ever making intercession for his people. Bestowing the blessings that he secured on the cross on as many as will trust him. I don't think that there are many people that really understand the significance of the baby. Even if they understand that the baby is the significance of the season but I am excited to have uh, these few minutes to look at this Christmas story uh, with you as it's recorded by Luke the thing that strikes me about Luke's account of the birth of Christ is the amazing brevity with which he speaks of the birth of God's son God's one and only God's only begotten son just seven verses Out of his gospel. Seven verses to tell us about uh, the birth of God's son. He tells us in the first few uh, verses of his gospel that uh, he decided to write up or draw up an orderly account of the events that had taken place amongst us uh, for a gentleman called Theophilus, whoever Theophilus was uh, is anybody's guess, maybe some high-flying Roman who had lots of money and uh, who could maybe, um, who, 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 who could finance a project like this and ask Luke to write an account of the birth and life and death and resurrection of Christ maybe, maybe somebody that Luke was witnessing to and he decided I'm going to write out the facts of this story and give them to you so that you can read them and be persuaded by them yourself, we don't really know who Theophilus was but Luke is writing an orderly account of these events so it's not fiction, it's, it's not made up, it's not legend, he he engaged in what we call research he asked the people what they knew, what they saw, what they experienced he took notes, he recorded and he wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit now we know that uh, from the book of Acts that he had visited Jerusalem so we assume that he had had the opportunity to talk with Mary on at least one occasion if not more and that he interviewed her about the events that unfolded during the birth of Christ. And so, what we have here uh, is, is not just kind of a fairy story, it is an eyewitness account, and uh, we're given it by this uh, gospel writer called Luke. Now, as I look at this text, uh, this little section of scripture, um, I want to just... I know that the words text sounds so boring, but I'm used to speaking to students, and so part of my role is to bore them to tears, so you'll have to forgive me if I do that uh, here. But this little section of Scripture, I just want to pull a few things uh, out of it. So, first of all, I want you to think with me about... Uh, the providence that unfolds here. So it's clear that the Jews, if we've read the Old Testament, we know that the Jews were expecting a coming Messiah. Someone who would be greater than the prophet Moses. Somebody who would be of the line and lineage of David. And uh, someone whose throne would know, know would know no end, so they were clearly expecting a coming uh, deliverer, a coming Messiah. So there was a sect within Judaism, and so we've got all kinds of sects within Christ, the Christian churches, you probably are a know, so you've got this evangelical section, and then you've got other groups. So, so within Judaism there were sects and different groups, and one of the sects was known as the Essenes. Or the Qumran community, and they live down by the Dead Sea. If you've ever been to Israel, you've probably visited Masada, where they uh, lived in, in, in caves and so on around there, and there's a whole settlement there. Well, their expectation or, or anticipation of a coming Messiah was such that they left a vacant chair at the table every evening. Waiting in anticipation for the coming Messiah. Should he come, there would be a place at the table waiting for him. So Jews were clearly uh, anticipating, expecting a coming Messiah. An angel had already appeared to Mary, we noticed that last time, to announce that she would miraculously conceive a baby, and that that baby would be this long-awaited saviour. When she conceived it, was it as the angel spoke to her? Was it at some point later? The truth is, uh, it's very difficult to say. But she conceived, and uh, a baby began to grow in, in her womb and uh, it was exciting days for those who heard about the angel's appearance no doubt the angel had appeared to elizabeth and then again to mary announcing the birth of a coming savior but the the scriptures had clearly predicted that the Saviour would be born in Bethlehem, not in Nazareth, where Mary lived. So in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, this is what it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting." So in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 it's clear that that the Messiah, the coming Savior is to be born in Bethlehem and not way up in the north where Mary and uh, her betrothed husband lived. And people had clearly worked this out when Herod asked the religious leaders where the Savior was to be born. They were able to tell him on the strength of Micah 5 verse 2 that the Savior or the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And if this was uh, so, there was an obvious problem, because uh, Mary's in Nazareth, uh, along with her betrothed husband and Bethlehem, is at least 70, 80, maybe 90 miles south, depends what route you take, uh, right down uh, close to Jerusalem. And of course, Mary and her betrothed husband had no plans to move to Bethlehem. But in the plan of God, he moved the Roman emperor Octavian, who later would be called Augustus, uh, to issue a decree ordering all the officials in the provinces throughout his kingdom or domain uh, to conduct a mass census of the population. Now the Romans required a census for two reasons. One would be for purposes of taxation and the other would be to find out who was eligible for military service. This uh, census was probably taken for taxation purposes. And here's an interesting little uh, detail that I, I, I discovered. This census was ordered several years earlier. And it was delayed in Judea because of the Jews and their relationship with their governors. It was delayed in Judea. And and it's only now that they're getting around to fulfilling this decree which had been issued years earlier. It seems that... um, things were done a little bit different in Judea than than they were done in other parts of the Roman Empire so in other parts of the Roman Empire you could simply show up uh, at at a census centre and uh, register yourself but in Judea it's all tied in with uh, your family history and what tribe do you belong to and, and so Joseph because he belongs to the house of David and the house of Jesse because he belongs to that family tree he has to go back to the town of Bethlehem where Jesse and of course David came from uh, to be registered and so they make their journey 70 miles south and uh, as she as they arrive in Bethlehem 70 miles south the baby then is born and scripture is fulfilled to a T scriptures that were written hundreds, thousands of years before this baby was ever born God in his providence orchestrated events so that this mother would be in the right place at the right time. So that this child would be born in the way that scripture said it should be and would be born. And God uh, not only orchestrated the events uh, there and then, but had been involved in orchestrating the events long before Mary even became pregnant. Long before the angel even showed up to make the announcement Augustus had issued the decree for the census. So even before Mary knows that she's going to be the vehicle through whom this baby will enter the world. Long before that, God is already beginning to move the events of history in order that this uh, baby will be born in, in, in Bethlehem. So, we look at the year which is to come. We think about the year which has just gone and some of us think... Goodness, I don't know if I could face another year like that. Um, and we wonder what the year ahead will hold, some of us. Uh, where will it lead? Uh, what kind of event, events will unfold? And the truth is, none of us know. But we can be confident that God will have us in the right place at the right time. And, and we don't have to worry about the signs of the zodiac or the movement of the planets. God knows what he has in store for us, and by his powerful providential hand, it will all come to pass. And whatever it it, it is, he has already prepared it for our arrival. He's been already at work providentially, orchestrating the events of next year for us And our arrival there. If this story is anything to go by. This God is the God of providence. Who organizes things on a national scale. On a world scale. He's not just some localized deity. Living in somewhere like Nazareth. Taking care of a local couple. This is a God who is in charge of history. History is his story. He's in charge of the entire world as he orchestrates the events to make sure that Scripture, the promises he made, are fulfilled. So I hope that's an encouragement to you. I I don't know what next year will hold. But I know who holds it. The God of providence. And the God who holds you in his hand. And the God who holds this world in his hand. And uh, he's able to take care of it and to take care of us, whatever the next chapter looks like. Well, here's the second thing that really struck me. Um, Not just the providence, but the pressure that this couple are now under. Um, Some people think that it was because... uh, Uh, The census was a taxation census that it was necessary for both Mary and Joseph to travel to Bethlehem to register. So if Mary owned some property, if her family owned some property and it had been left to her, then she perhaps would need to travel to Bethlehem uh, to sign for that. um, And and therefore she needed to go as well as, as Joseph. Others seem to suggest that there was absolutely no necessity on Mary as a woman in the context of the first century world to travel to Bethlehem because it was only the head of the family that needed to attend in person uh, at the signing off of a census. And it's difficult really to be definitive either way. If the latter is the case, there's no real reason for Mary to go. Uh, She was well on in her pregnancy, that much is clear if she arrives in Bethlehem and gives birth. She must have been well on in her pregnancy before they left Nazareth. Joseph and Mary were surely not so naive as to know that this journey would almost certainly send her into labour. I mean, you don't ride 70 miles on the back of a donkey eight and a half months pregnant and expect that there will be no consequences or no knock-on effects. And we know that Joseph loved Mary greatly, that's why he didn't want to end the relationship instantly when he heard the news that she was expecting a baby. Most folks would just have walked away and washed their hands. But there's a graciousness, there's a tenderness, there's a sense of loyalty about Joseph that you don't just find in every Tom, Dick or Harry. It's hard to see that Joseph, given his love for Mary, would have put her through this the, 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 the discomfort of this journey unnecessarily. There must have been some compelling reason to bring her along, so why did she go along? Did she know the prophecies concerning the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem? And did she decide all of her own volition? I better go to Bethlehem to make sure scripture is fulfilled. And to make sure that the Savior is born. Just as Micah said in Micah 5 verse 2. Well that's unlikely I think. I think the second reason is somewhat nearer the truth. And that is that she went with Joseph because he would not leave her behind in Nazareth. Because of the slanderous tongues of the villagers, who were making all kinds of comments and snide remarks about her ever-growing tummy. And Joseph wanted to save her from the potential of abuse that she might suffer, perhaps even from her own parents, who knows how they felt. And it's interesting that they are never mentioned in scripture And how was she to conceive them that she was pregnant and yet had never been involved with a man in any capacity? We live in a world where there are thousands of teenage pregnancies. But Mary lived in a village where this was just unthinkable, unheard of. She lived in a community that was tightly controlled by Jewish elders. And according to Jewish law, a betrothed woman who became pregnant Uh, by an act of adultery could be stoned to death because being betrothed to Joseph meant more than just being engaged it it was something that could only be ended through a divorce process it was a serious contract that they had entered into and they were well on their way to merging their lives together in, in one It's unlikely that the Jews were practicing this law of stoning people who were caught in adultery in in the first century. But in the very least, we would need to acknowledge that Mary's situation to be left alone in Nazareth would have been precarious. No husband to protect her, no one to look out for her. No one to uh, be that strong presence around her when other people were pointing the finger at her. Joseph's sensitivity towards his espoused wife, I think, needs to be highly commended as he brings her with him. He felt he had no alternative. I doubt if Mary received flowers or chocolates on a regular basis. I doubt that that she was ever whisked away for a romantic weekend. Certainly not on a regular basis. I don't even know that if I don't even know if Joseph was the kind of person who could sit down beside her and have these deep and meaningful conversations that my wife seems to think that I should know a little bit about. I, I wonder if Joseph knew the first foggiest thing about such things. But one thing I am pretty sure of is the fact that he was absolutely committed to his new bride. Absolutely committed to his new bride. I heard about one man who left instructions. Uh, for these words to be inscribed on his tombstone beneath these stones do lie back to back my wife and I when the last trumpet the air shall fill if she gets up I'll just lie still (laughs) well Joseph wasn't like that He he wanted Mary to be with him he knew that God expected him to love her And to protect her, and he refused to throw her to the wolves or even to her family, uh, who may not have wanted her uh, during his absence. I heard about one couple who were madly in love and got married and they got home uh, from their honeymoon and everything was going swell and uh, wonderful and one night when mum and dad had some visitors around they received a phone call from their newly married daughter Uh, she was phoning to tell mum that she and her husband, her new husband had had their first fight now later dad asked what was the phone call about when the visitors had gone home oh she says they've had their first fight what did she say dad asked she said she wanted to come home what did you say I told her she was at home (laughs) Joseph knew that Mary was at home with him whatever the cost whatever the consequences whatever the hassle he knew that she was at home with him now and that it was his responsibility to care for her and love her and that he did admirably and there's a huge challenge for those of us uh, who are husbands we we think a little bit about Mary we think about the lonely furrow that she ploughed we think about the fact that she must have been misunderstood and maligned in, in, in derogatory ways but she had a husband who stood with her every step of the way and uh Many of the wives in Christian marriages wish that they had a husband as devoted to them as Joseph was to Mary. And I think this is something that I need to face, and all of us who are husbands, or even prospective husbands need to face. Uh, We show the kind of love that Joseph showed to Mary. This is the home that God entrusted his son's care to. This is the family unit that God placed his son in. We're at the head of the home. There wasn't a brute, but there was a man of tenderness and real compassion and real love for his wife. And that was the home into which God placed his son. And it shows you just a a little bit, doesn't it? The value that God puts on husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And uh, this is what God expects of us. And again, it's not some fairy story. This is real everyday life as uh, we apply it to us. Well, the third thing, and uh, I, I need to keep on the move. The third thing is just the problem. So she brought forth her son, verse 7. So he is so economical with his words, Luke. She brought forth her son, her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And uh, laid him in a manger because there was no room for For him in the inn. I think this makes the point that uh, the purpose of this—the purpose of this verse—I think—is to confront us with the loneliness of the birth of Christ. Uh, We're not sure what kind of inn Joseph tried to get room in, but we're told that there was no room in the inn. Now, uh, it it could have been anything equivalent to the modern day bed and breakfast type place, or it could have been a sort of ready-made shack at the side of the road. In Bible times, inns were pretty notorious places, uh, not always the safest places to stay in. Um, It's unlikely that Mary and Joseph had any great amount of money. Uh, There were lots of people making their way to Bethlehem. um, And Joseph would have been content to have taken anything that was available. Whatever kind of inn it was, there were no rooms to be rented. It was a full house. Now, this is quite something, given that Mary is visibly pregnant at this stage. Now, if she's just about to give birth, she's obviously visibly pregnant. And yet, still there's no room for them. in, 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 in the inn. You can imagine somebody trying to get accommodation at the last minute during the f- festival in Edinburgh. A complete nightmare. There would be plenty of refusals. And no doubt Mary and Joseph, and Joseph in particular knocked many doors and was turned away again and again. There was no booking.com It was a case of show up and see if you could find somewhere to stay. Until at last, an innkeeper eventually gave them an area where they could uh, stay among Amongst his animals, and we assume that because Jesus was laid in an animal 's manger, a, a, a feeding implement where animals would eat straw from, and, and this is where the baby was laid out when it was born. No, can't be sure what kind of manger it was, and we can't be sure what kind of uh, stable it was. Was it a field? Was it a cave? Was it a lean-to to the house of the innkeeper? And there are all kinds of theories and notions about that. But the thing that Luke wants us to see is that this was not a romantic scene. It wasn't the romantic scene that we see in our Christmas cards. This was no place for a young Jewish teenage girl to be giving birth to a baby in an animal confinement. Can you imagine giving birth in surroundings like these? Campbell G. Morgan said that that at the hour of all hours, when womanhood should have been surrounded by the tenderest of care, Mary was alone with her own hands she wrapped her baby and laid him in a manger. Jesus, God's son, was brought forth in the surroundings of an animal enclosure no doctor present, no midwife present. It was a lonely night for this teenaged girl. And such a birth was far from typical in Jewish culture. It was highly unusual for a Jewish woman and a young woman to be turned away uh, being visibly pregnant. And the innkeeper over the years has come in for some fairly bad press, hasn't he? Uh, Lots of people have come down on him like a ton of bricks. Why didn't he give his own room to this teenage girl who is about to have a baby? Well, maybe he had already given his own room away to someone else. And maybe we should cut the poor innkeeper a little bit of slack. This is not just about the innkeeper. This is a much bigger picture than that. There was no room for Jesus. And that was largely how he lived his life and how he grew up amongst us. People had no room for him. No time for him. No interest in him. Oh, there were the crowds... But the crowds were superficial and all that glitters is not gold because by the end of the week the crowds that were shouting Hosanna save now son of David were shouting crucify him away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. (coughs) So what about us then in the busyness of our lives as we think about Christmas do we really have time for Jesus or are we so busy in the hubbub of Christmas and the buying of presents and the buying of food and the preparing of food and all that goes with it and finishing up work or whatever else it is we are involved in have we time to really savor Jesus to really think about the wonder of God's Son becoming flesh and living amongst us I wonder if you've got room in your life for Jesus I, I mean just full stop have you, any, have you given any time, any room, any space to Jesus whatsoever? Are you going to go through another year and still be shutting Jesus out of your life? Why don't you invite Jesus to become, Come into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay. Don't be like the innkeeper. And the various other innkeepers in Bethlehem who had no room for him. Well, fourthly, the person. um, We should say something about this child, shouldn't we? There is a sense in which Christ's birth was not miraculous. It was his conception that was miraculous. This was a natural and an ordinary birth. But but what an amazing act of condescension. The God of eternity steps into history. The God who knows no boundaries, who is everywhere all of the time, is confined in the frame of an infant. The New Testament writers tell us that he is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yet he became a baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem. He became an infant dependent on a teenaged mother. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? It is the Lord. Oh, wondrous story. It is the Lord, the King of glory. And all of this serves to highlight the sacrifice that God made to provide us with salvation. I was interested to read a while ago about one of the Queen's earlier trips to the United States. Um, She had two outfits for every engagement. She had a mourning outfit in case someone important would die when she was in the States. She brought her own hairdresser and numerous other attendants. But when the King of Glory visited our planet, there were no visible attendants, apart from a few grazing animals. God took on human flesh. He never ceased to be what he had always been, pure, holy, divine, omnipotent, omniscient. But he became something that he had never been before, human flesh. He became flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone so that he could become our savior. So that he could live a perfect life that we could never live and earn a righteousness that we could never earn. He lived a perfect life, kept God's law perfectly in our place. And then that deals with the righteousness we need. But what about our sin? Then he goes to the cross and he bears the penalty that our sin deserves. So that our sin now can be dealt with. And so we, as we come and put our faith in him, his righteousness is transferred to us. And our sin is transferred to him. And he bears the penalty of our sin so that we can go free. That's the child in the manger. It's not some romantic sort of scene. This, is, this, this infant has come to this planet to be our representative, to become one of us. So that he can take our place and the punishment that we deserved, So that we can go free. And this is no rogue member of the Trinity doing his own thing. This is God coming to become our saviour. And some of us are here. Interesting that Paul says, I I, I was struck by that phrase. I've spoken at sort of nativity services a couple of times. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. I mean, how could you ever describe the gift of God? It's unspeakable. It's indescribable. It's beyond our wildest imaginations that God would go to such amazing lengths to provide us with so much. And some of us are here and we've never accepted God's amazing gift. Well the last thing is this, and with this I'm finished, the people then. Uh, We could say a lot about Mary and Joseph, couldn't we? A a girl in her teens, maybe her late teens. Joseph, the village carpenter. um, Very ordinary people. You would say, wouldn't you? Like, not you wouldn't say that they were, they weren't living in in a palace like King Herod. They weren't even living in the high priest's grand house in Jerusalem. Just a, a very ordinary couple living in Nazareth, a girl and a carpenter, a village carpenter making carts for donkeys and various other implements. That that's what he spent his time doing. Yet yet this is the family to whom God entrusts his son. This is the family. I, I doubt if they were able to buy Jesus, their baby son, you know, the most latest toy every Christmas. I'm pretty sure they weren't. I'm, I'm pretty sure they were content if they got food on the table every day. And I'm pretty sure that there were times when Joseph didn't have any work and there was no food on the table and, and they were dependent on their family, their, their wider family for, for support this, this is not a rich family this is a hand to mouth society these are just labourers working day in day out and as they, as they work they eat and if they don't work they don't eat that's, that's the environment and, and that's the family into which uh, God gives his son and trusts his son and it reminds us is that that. You know two things about Mary and joseph I, that I think that, that 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 they were able to give jesus they couldn 't buy him what is the latest toy this year i, I don 't know I, my children are all old now. If you, I showed up with toys they would they would scream cry i think Nike runners are what they 're after Air force one runners what 's the most latest toy for say a ten year old Anybody know nobody knows oh that 's good then. <laughs> You've got A phone, a mobile phone, see? Well, I don't think Mary and Joseph would have been able to buy a phone for, 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 for Jesus. But two things they could do. One thing I'd say about Mary and Joseph is they were a godly couple. When I mean, you look at her magnificat, the theology in that is incredible for a teenager. They were a godly couple and I think that they were a loving couple. I think those are two things that they could give their son. And, and those seem to be the, the things on God's list when he was saying, Where, what family will I entrust my son to? And, and we get things all, all out of perspective and we think, oh, we're bad parents because we can't buy this and we can't get them that. And look at all the other kids are getting that and we can't, we can't do that. No, you're not. You can give your kids two things that are at the very top of God's list, list an influence for God and good and just love just a love you see the love in Joseph and the way he cares for Mary how did he not care for this little infant when it was born look at the, the lengths that he goes to protect to protect him from Herod as he takes his family down into Egypt well, this, is a, this is a home where love is the key as, as well as godliness and, and you have it within your power to give your children those two things And they'll forget all about Air Force Ones and their phones when they're my age. And they look back on their childhood. But they'll remember godly parents and they'll remember loving parents. And and that's what God gave to his son. Well, the other thing that strikes me about the people involved in this Christmas story is just their ordinariness. And uh, with this I'm finished. I mean, just an ordinary couple, a village carpenter, a girl that has no job, just a teenager, and now expecting a baby. A bunch of shepherds on a hillside who can't even give testimony in court because their testimony won't, isn't considered reliable. Who never get to the temple or the, or the synagogue to, to purify themselves and are therefore constantly regarded as unclean shepherds. Are the first people to hear about the birth of Jesus and you go through the story of, of Jesus' life and, and that is, that is the, one of the most uh, significant features of his ministry he's interested in ordinary people his ten closest friends not one of them had been to rabbinic school just ordinary fishermen and farm labourers and zealots uh, who, who despise the Romans and want to get rid of the... he, he has one of them join his, his team His disciples are just ordinary, ordinary, uh, ordinary men. Twelve disciples. Well, um, do you feel ordinary? I feel ordinary at times. Very ordinary. But it's an amazing thing that God is interested in ordinary people. And God is interested in you, whoever you are. Don't you ever believe the lie of the devil that God would never be interested in someone like you? God is deeply interested in you. And he demonstrated that in the people that his son spent a lot of time with. He's interested in your life. And, and he, he's interested in, in you knowing him. And walking with him. And enjoying him. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Some people talk about glorifying God and forget all about enjoying God. And there's no joy in their Christian experience. But I think I think Jesus came to this world so that we could be reconciled to God. This God that we were created to know. And this God that we were created to enjoy. And it's only you'll only experience real joy as you live in fellowship with this God that you were created to know well you think well maybe, maybe that's for other people it's not for me I'm just too ordinary I get up in the morning I get my day in and I'm happy when I get back to bed and as, if that's you I want you to know God is interested in you because God cares about ordinary people look at this little teenage girl who would have chosen her to be the mother of their, of their son out of all of the great ladies in the world God picks a humble girl Because he's the God of the ordinary person. So this week, you take that with you. God cares deeply about me, despite my ordinariness. And uh, God has a future for me and a plan for me. And he wants me to enjoy him and know him and live in harmony and fellowship with him. So the few things that we looked at were very simple. The providence of God. God was able to organize world events. The pressure... Look at the care that Joseph shows to Mary. Despite the abuse that she would have faced, faced in, in, in Nazareth. The problem, no room for Jesus when they got to Bethlehem. Some of us are a bit like that, with no room for Jesus. The person in the manger, oh, this, this is the God of history. The God of eternity becomes part of history. So that he can become our saviour. And the people... This Christmas, let's not forget the little couple that God entrusted his son to. Ordinary people. Yet they had the things that God counted important. I think godliness and uh, love.